Hello, everyone. Before our podcast begins, we want to let you in on some exciting news. The Chamura team has made JobsEQ even more user-friendly, which is why we recently updated JobsEQ's design and released a series of new JobsEQ products. Visit our website at chamura.com to schedule your JobsEQ demo today. The JobsEQ update makes it even easier to understand your local labor market. And now, on with our show. The North American Strategy for Competitiveness is a coalition of governments, businesses, and educational institutions made up of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. This trinational coalition is driven by a common interest in collaboration along key freight and commercial trade networks. NASCO, founded in 1994, is dedicated to informing and advancing the critical role that supply chain, logistics, trade, and a skilled workforce play in the economic growth and enterprise of North America in the global marketplace. Tiffany Melvin has led NASCO for 23 of its 26 years, first as the executive director of NASCO and now as its president. Under her vision and leadership and with the dedication of the NASCO team, the organization has grown into a widely respected partnership focusing on freight logistics, the environment, and growing North America's skilled workforce. She directs NASCO with an aggressive, far-reaching, cooperative approach to solving critical issues impacting the efficient, secure, and sustainable movement of freight throughout North America. Tiffany serves on numerous councils and boards, such as the U.S. Department of Commerce Advisory Council on Supply Chain Competitiveness. She is also the chairman of its NAFTA, USMCA Task Force. Tiffany also serves on the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Advisory Council's Border Infrastructure Task Force, the Manufacturing Skill Standards Leadership Council, the Binational Board of Directors of the U.S.-Mexico Chamber of Commerce, and is a founding board member of the Canada-Texas Chamber of Commerce. Tiffany is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, holding a BBA in International Business with minors in Marketing in Spanish, and has her Juris Doctor degree from St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio. Now, today's host, our president, Leslie Peterson, sits down with our very special guest, the president of NASCO, Tiffany Melvin, for a conversation on eating the elephant, one bite at a time, how NASCO helps connect North America globally. Tiffany, I am delighted to speak with you today. I've wanted to sit down with you for some time now because woven through your story is uh, this phrase about the I-35 corridor. It's pretty intriguing. Tell us all about it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Leslie. It's it's great to be here with you today and um, I'm excited for the conversation. So yeah, the I-35 corridor, I mean, that takes me way back. It was really the the impetus behind our entire organization. And it is, you know, how we've, you know, the start of, of everything for us. It was, you know, it's the I-35 interstate highway. So that in of itself doesn't sound, you know, that interesting. But um, most people, when they think about interstate highways, they think about cars and, and trucks and congestion, right? Um, we started using the phrase I-35 corridor, uh, really because it's more than just a highway. It's an, it's an economic generator. 
Um, it's important to freight movement, to people movement, to the quality of life. As we all know, when we sit in, in congestion, it, it destroys our quality of life. So really, we wanted to kind of get in the mind frame, you know, people we were talking to to say, look, this is more than just a highway. This is the our nation's backbone, right? So I-35 um, really, truly is part of the nation's, you know, backbone or is, part, is, is the nation's backbone because it connects to Laredo, Texas, which is the largest border crossing on the southern border. Um, it goes all the way to Duluth, Minnesota. So Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota. It has a major connector to I-29 uh, that heads up to the border with Manitoba. So actually, Canadians have long considered I-29 and I-35 the mid-continent corridor. And now a lot of people refer to it as just the NAFTA highway or the NAFTA corridor. Um, when Back in 1994, when the first NAFTA was enacted, that was when a group of local elected officials and industry in North Texas along I-35 realized, okay, this NAFTA thing has happened. Whether it's going to be good, bad, or ugly, you know, we're going to have a lot more trucks on our, on our Interstate 35 highway. And what people kind of tend to forget is that there was a lot of North American truck traffic on I-35 before NAFTA. Uh, so there was going to be maybe, you know, perhaps more, but they wanted to make sure that no matter what happened, it became an economic development opportunity and not a disaster for the for the constituents and the people that live along I-35. So that I-35 corridor is woven into our story a lot because it's really where we got our start. And uh, we've, you know, we've grown from there very organically. Well, that's a great story. Um, let's let's expand it some somewhat and talk about the world of trade. It's getting pretty exciting yet complicated. I see you've been with NASCO for 26 years, but before we talk that, about that, um, tell us how you got there. Well, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, I graduated from law school in 1995. And like I just mentioned, there was in 1994, the I-35, you know, group got together to talk about NAFTA and, and economic development opportunities. They had formed a, a group called the I-35 Corridor Coalition. And so when I got out of law school, um, I actually went to work for the law firm and the public policy consultancy that was under one roof. And they were the lead consultants on this project. And at the time, you know, you mentioned that trade is exciting. It's, it's so exciting. But at the time, you know, when I heard about this project, I thought, okay, trucks and highways, that sounds kind of boring, but, um, you know, I'm at the firm, they want to put me on this client, so I'm happy to get involved. Um, and that kind of changed my life forever, because from that point, uh, the group decided they wanted to turn themselves into a nonprofit and have their own board of directors. And they asked me to uh, leave the firm and to turn them into a nonprofit. And at that point, uh, we sat down and realized that, you know, we had learned so much in that first year and a half of work that it's not just about Texas trucking issues, it's not about Oklahoma, that the freight network is a circulatory system, it's about all modes working together properly, it's about um, you know, all the connections where, when there's congestion in one area, it affects another. So we really had, and it's coming all directions, not just north-south, although that's the focus of NAFTA trade, but it, the freight is coming in east-west, north-south, every direction. So at that point we sat down and thought, okay, you know, where we want to take this, this new nonprofit. And that's when we decided to have um, a broader focus on, on freight systems, freight networks, on North American, you know, working with our neighbors in Mexico and Canada. Um, and so 
we very organically, really by word of mouth, um, you know, we started on the I-35 corridor, of course, like I've mentioned, um, you know, moved down towards Laredo, Texas, up to Oklahoma, started talking. People heard about the, the effort and wanted to get involved. And so really, we haven't ever done some massive marketing campaign for, for members joining. It's just been about the excitement around uh, feeling connected to other North Americans and the freight networks that connect us and that are so important. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really how I got here. I've been with the organization now, uh, I'm almost 27 years. Um, and I can tell you that it's exciting, never a dull moment, highly political. Um, it's just a really fascinating area. I'm sure it is. Um, with all of those modes of transportation, do you find yourself, um, in statistical models that, um, might be looking at distribution pathways? Um, I mean, we're, we're always looking at, at distribution pathways and focusing on, you know, uh, improving intermodal connectors and that kind of a thing. So, um, we're, we're looking a lot at the way, you know, the continental trade flows and ways to make sure that, uh, we are advocating for, you know, important enhancements or capacity enhancements or border crossing solutions to, to better serve the continental trade flow. So we focus, you know, definitely on the distribution patterns. Um, absolutely. Tiffany, let's, let's get to the heart of NASCO. Tell us about the NASCO network, what it is and the work you're doing there. Okay, so the NASCO network, um, like I mentioned, you know, we've grown over the past almost 27 years, and we are the only tri-national membership-based organization uh, that actually has voluntary dues-paying members from all three countries, meaning that we don't get dedicated funding year over year from certain governments or entities. It's it's kind of a, you, you're in or you're out each, each year. Um, our members now, as we stand today, come from all over North America. So we have provinces in Canada, we have states in the U.S. and states in Mexico, we have cities, we have counties, economic development organizations, trade associations, chambers of commerce. We have multiple different freight corridor coalitions. We have all the modes of transportation represented. We have all the key elements of the supply chain covered with insurance, banking, finance, uh, real estate developers. We have, you know, ports of entry, water ports, inland ports, uh, universities, graduate schools, high school independent school districts, community colleges, technical schools. So we have got this vast, diverse network of North Americans, and um, we have over the years fine-tuned ourselves into having three main focus areas, and that's, of course, supply chain and logistics, um, energy and the environment, and then closing the skilled workforce gap. So in all of these you know, different areas, we are advocates, but we also take action. So we've been for, for decades really out at the grassroots level across the United States, Canada, Mexico, trying to educate people on the importance of trade, of trade agreements, letting them know and, and educating them on how trade impacts their daily lives, that it's a personal thing, people should care about this, that everything that you touch and see and use all day long got there on a truck, a train, a ship, or a plane that the cost of goods in the marketplace are directly impacted by transportation logistics costs, um, insurance premiums, and fuel costs. So if you can get a seamless, secure, efficient freight transportation network and secure and efficient border crossings, it can help the cost of goods in the marketplace. Um, so we, we've been out there, you know, really pounding the pavement about the importance of trade and trade agreements. But then we also take action. 
I mean, again, after 27 years, you hear a lot about the vision for North America or different visions that people have. There's a lot of think tanks and research done about the vision. But how do you get there? Kind of like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You have to break down where you're going into small, tangible actions that you can take every day to move things forward. And so that's really what NASCO tries to do. We try to advocate for the importance of trade um, and we'll get behind you know, local projects that are continentally significant. Um, we, of course, advocate for infrastructure bills, for you know, border security and improved efficiency at borders. Um, but we also try to do our own work along these ways. We connect people to one another. Um, a lot of the work that takes place with trade is done at the subnational level and with industry. So we're constantly trying to connect our North American members to one another. Um, we take on pilot projects. We've become huge advocates for technology-based solutions for improving the way freight moves. Uh, we've worked with the U.S. Department of Transportation on a couple of different technology pilot projects as stakeholder coordinators, getting trucking companies and logistics companies to participate in, in pilots to test out solutions. Um, on workforce, we've done our own internal pilot where we actually worked um, with a, a credentialing program with the Manufacturing Skills Standards Council, uh, who's you know, a proven, a proven credentialing and training program here in the United States, but we worked in Mexico to get CONOCER, their, their uh, governing body, their agency that actually approves standards for training in Mexico to approve the standards and to work with some Mexican companies and provide training to show that there's a, a foundational opportunity here to train our, our entry and mid-level workers in a similar fashion across North America to improve competitiveness. So while we're huge advocates, we also try to roll up our sleeves and get a little dirty and try, try things out uh, to move things forward. Tiffany, exhaustive answer. <laughs> there's a lot of tentacles coming out of that ecosystem at NASCO. Thank you so much. Uh, Tiffany, um, I feel like our listeners would like to understand the why behind the importance of cooperation between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Can you help us with that? Sure. Um, I think, you know, it, it is interesting to me. I think there's as much as I, you know, focus on North American the economy and trade and, and so many of our counterparts, my counterparts do as well. I think it's always good to kind of break it down into some really good um, statistics that I think are really interesting that people need to understand about how much we all already work together in North America. Um, so since NAFTA, Naturally, NAFTA actually created free trade among almost 500 million consumers. Um, so in the United States, Canada, Mexico, we are only about 6.5% of the world's population, but together we generate 27% of the world's GDP. And if you break it down, the trade among Canada, the United States, and Mexico is estimated at $144 million per hour. I find that to be fascinating, that just the time during this podcast, almost $144 million of trade will have taken place between Canada, US, and Mexico. Canada and Mexico are the United States' largest suppliers of agricultural products, and Canada and Mexico are the two largest agricultural export markets for the United States. I think this was a very little known fact before the renegoti renegotiation of NAFTA. I think sometimes even some of the farmers didn't realize that their crops were going to Canada and Mexico because they were selling them to intermediaries. And so that was a really important fact that came out of the, of the USMCA re, or the NAFTA renegotiation into now USMCA. Um, trade among Canada, the United States, and Mexico supports over 12 million American jobs. So trade is a really good 
uh, job creator in the United States. Uh, related to energy and oil, the U.S. imports 40% of its crude oil from Canada and 7% from Mexico. 40% of our crude oil comes from Canada. And nearly 5 million barrels of crude oil and petroleum products cross the Canada-U.S. border every day. Um, and perhaps the biggest one is that North America produces goods and services that are valued at more than $23 trillion every year. And I don't want to get too political here, but one thing when I was watching President Trump announce uh, that USMCA had been agreed to, um, he did a press conference from his desk, and he was talking about how the USMCA will govern uh, $23 trillion worth of trade every year after he had said that NAFTA was the worst trade agreement in the history of the world. And so, but it begged the question, where did that $23 trillion come from? It's not like it produced, you know, spontaneously produced itself overnight when the USMCA was entered into it. The NAFTA caused that $23 trillion every year. So NAFTA was a hugely successful trade agreement, and we anticipate that the USMCA uh, will continue that trend. But so we have deeply integrated supply chains already. I mean, a lot of different you know, we, we make things together. We, we make things in North America. When you talk about USA, like even your car seats that you sit in your car, a lot of those car seats have crossed the border between US, Canada, and Mexico eight or 10 times before they become a finished car seat. Um, often not mentioned about NAFTA as well is that NAFTA helped to retain jobs. You hear there a lot of political thing about it. We lost jobs, it created jobs. People disagree on what NAFTA, you know, how successful it was. But before NAFTA happened, um, a lot of the companies were considering picking up and moving their entire operations to China. And NAFTA kept them in place in the United States and expanding into Mexico and, and Canada. But no one really talks about those job retention numbers. And they didn't really do a good job of, of tracking those numbers either. But when I, to give an example of how we make things together, 25 cents out of every dollar of goods that are imported from Canada to the United States, so coming from Canada to the United States, 25% of that is already made in USA content meaning that we sent them something that they then did something to and sent it back to us. So again, deeply integrated supply chains and 40 cents out of every dollar for goods imported into the United States from Mexico are actually made in the USA contact, content as well. So 40 cents of every dollar coming to us from Mexico is already made of something that we sent to them first. So I think I feel like those statistics are, are really astounding when you talk about our deeply integrated supply chains um, uh, and we also have, you know, similar political systems and there's just an enormous opportunity, uh, to be, uh, oh, I didn't even mention the energy resources, the abundant energy resources that we have in our three countries. And when you talk about the energy and that we're connected by land, we're already our greatest trading partners. I and mean, we have an opportunity really to become the most competitive continent on earth. Fascinating story. It is our hope that this podcast gets that story out there in a bigger sort of way. So thank you for sharing that. While we're talking about supply chain and the integration of our countries, let's shift to pandemic. <laughs> um, as economists, we're watching the supply chain very closely, but we'd love to have your perspective. Well, yeah. So <laughs> the pandemic, my gosh, how that <laughs> has, has changed our, our world. Um, I think when we talk about uh, supply chains and the pandemic and what's gone on there, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, you go back to the whole toilet paper, the scare on toilet paper and that kind of a thing. But what I try to explain to people is that supply chains 
are meant to be optimized. I mean, they're, they're just in time delivery. That's what you want. You want minimal inventory in warehouses so that you're not paying to store things. And when, when supply chains are functioning at their highest level, they're, they're, they're just in time, they're optimized. So the pandemic, of course, threw a wrench into that. Um, it was unexpected, we were unprepared. We had a sort of patchwork of different jurisdictions taking measures of varying extremes at different times. Uh, there was no federal leadership to speak of really um, that was funneling down to the states about how to handle it. No consultation with one another at the subnational level. So you had sections of the US or Canada or Mexico that were shutting down manufacturing or closing borders, but others were still open. Um, you had the whole issue of uh, essential versus non-essential, who could still work, who couldn't work. Um, retail and hospitality services closed. And then you have the whole human nature thing. You know, the, the supply chain didn't necessarily break down. It wasn't the supply chain's fault. There was a human nature issue of, oh my God, we're in a pandemic. What if the supply chain fails? I better buy all the toilet paper, all the water, all the medical supplies, all the masks, all the gloves, all the hand sanitizer. Like, so people were hoarding. So supply chains don't work like that. Um, so, so there was a lot of different things happening at once that just wreaked havoc with everything. And we're still dealing with, with border closures at the U.S.-Canada and U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I mean, I think the challenge is to get everyone on the same page. And, and NASCO actually spent, you know, this, again, the pandemic came out of nowhere, obviously. But uh, for NASCO, we, we try to pride ourselves on being flexible and that when we're working on issues, if something more important comes up, that we can kind of turn and try to use our network and our great vast membership to get the expertise we need to make recommendations. And so we did come up with a, a North American emergency supply chain continuity plan. And we were pushing that, we have still are, but we've been pushing it really hard um, at, the, at the federal levels and then at local levels too, but to eliminate the reliance on overseas markets with, with uh, PPE and with you know the mask and the hand sanitizer and to be able to switch production lines. There's some great examples of companies like Mary Kay Cosmetics that switched from you know makeup to hand sanitizer. You get a lot of the distilleries that switch to hand sanitizer. And so there's some really huge stories out there about companies that have played their, their role and, 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 and helped us get through this. But we need to have a, almost a database of sorts of where are the raw materials in our continent? where to, to make the stuff that we need, the emergency medical supplies. Uh, where are the warehouses, uh, you know, where are the, where are the manufacturing plants? Where are the logistics providers that can, that can move this stuff and to, you know, reduce lead time and, and, and surge, surge capacity? Um, warehousing, the end demands, is it stadiums, truck stops, you know, the hospitals, the clinics? So have, have an understanding of where all this takes place in our continent so that in the future, we can work together, coordinate our approach to open and closed and essential and non-essential, um, and be able to, to track where this stuff is to hopefully handle the next pandemic because, you know, God forbid everyone says there will be one, um, that we can do it better in a more coordinated approach. Well, thank you for those insights. Um... The pandemic certainly pointed to a non-political public health failure, and the best practices and lessons learned, it would be nice to see them incorporated into some sort of digital format that is accessible. Shifting gears, um, it seems that there may be sort of a sea change with the Biden administration. Can you give us insights 
to what those changes could be and how NASCA will help its members navigate these waters? Yeah, so uh, with the Biden administration, um, you know, obviously you've heard, I think most people have heard now, it's been on the news quite a bit about his push, you know, his, his focus on supply chains because of the pandemic, um, and then a push for an infrastructure bill, and then also a, a very keen interest in climate change and environmental issues. Um, so these are really good, these are really good, um, well, let me say this. NASCA has been focusing on these areas for a long time. Like I mentioned, our focus areas, supply chain and logistics, energy and the environment and workforce. And of course, Biden absolutely has a focus on workforce. And I think I think all three countries are fairly aligned on this. And really, these issues should not be partisan issues. They shouldn't be political issues. I think everyone agrees, Republicans, Democrats, left, right, you know, uh, that these, the, these three issues of supply chains, logistics, infrastructure, uh, environmental issues, closing the skilled workforce gap, they're, they're critical, critical, critical. The issue is that politics gets in the way all the time. And so they, they all agree they're important. They disagree on how to fund, fund the, the mechanisms to, to make change happen. So I think from a NASCO perspective, we, our shift is not too much. We're not really changing the way we go about doing, you know, um, you know advocating for our three focus areas and the initiatives that we work on. It's more of that my hope is that it won't fall on deaf ears quite as much in the environmental areas and um, that hopefully Biden can work across the aisle and get some compromise uh, with the Republicans on how to move an infrastructure bill forward. I mean, almost every president wants to do an infrastructure bill and nothing's been done on this in decades. And it's, you know, other countries that don't have the democratic process are, are you know, leaving us, leaving us in the dust. Um, so we have got to uh, make this happen. And I think now is as good as chance as any. And I and so hopefully that's, you know, something that we can work on at the NASCO level with our partners, lots of different binational organizations, think tanks. I mean, we all kind of agree on the vision of where this needs to go. We've just got to take this opportunity to reach some compromise in Congress and, and get things moving forward. Those politicians can be somewhat peppery at times. Um, <laughs> but thank you. Um, if we might just take a deeper dive for a moment into your workforce initiative, as you can imagine, we're passionate about closing the skills gap here at Chamura, and we'd like to hear, our, our audience would like to hear more about your role in workforce development. Absolutely. So this is actually a focus area that um, was not one of our original ones, you know, 25 years ago. We were supply chain and logistics and, and sort of environment. And we began to talk to our members about what their greatest challenges were and what role they thought NASCO could play in trying to help them out. And a lot of people would say, well, this isn't something NASCO focuses on, but workforce is my greatest challenge. Finding skilled workers is my greatest challenge. And enough people said it to us that we thought, well, okay, we have this great network. Perhaps we should look into this more. So I'm going to go with probably 10 or 11 years ago, we started trying to learn everything we could about the status of, of workforce gaps in Mexico, US, and Canada. Uh, we've been working very hard to elevate the, the public awareness uh, to, the, to the skills gaps in the three countries, um, trying to convene stakeholders to figure out a way to achieve a more consistent quality across training and certification programs throughout North America. We believe very strongly in an opportunity for our North American continent 
to work in very similar fashion, maybe not perfectly harmonized because there are different laws and safety standards in each of the three countries, but to have a really harmonized approach to training and to getting consistent quality and standards and certification programs and credentialing, working on credentials, portable credentials. So right now it's a little bit too hot of a political topic with going portable across international borders, you know, taking your credentials and that's, it hits the immigration issue, issue which is in, you know, hot water right now. But really, even if you're talking about just a portable credential down the street, we've heard some, from so many private companies that, um, you know, they, they there's a lack of, in their opinion, a lack of, of skilled, of good training out there. They're not necessarily working with their community colleges. And so when they get these employees, they have to develop their own training programs internal to their company. But then if that, if that employee leaves or, or, you know, whatever, moves jobs into a different company, they don't have a credential they can take with them. They only have what the train they received at XYZ company, and they don't know if that applies elsewhere. So what we're trying to do is take a huge, you know, a holistic approach to um, having the employees actually understand the credentials and what skills they have. There's a huge issue now, too, with people that are advertising for jobs, the companies that write the job descriptions and the people that are reading the job descriptions. They're not using the same words. And so someone might know that their skill set actually would be directly applicable to the job description they're reading. Um, but they don't realize it because they don't, they're not speaking the same language. So we're trying to take this to a very base level where industry works so closely with community college to let the, and technical schools and high schools, even high schools, to let those um, training institutions know exactly what they need in employees and to work that at a very local level. But then also for the employees to get, to get credentials out of these training programs that they can move with them job to job. Um, and it's, so it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And I think a lot of people, there's an issue with a lot of people not wanting to go into logistics and manufacturing jobs. They think they're boring or they're going to be in dirty warehouses. Um, and now with automation, uh, there's so much opportunity, great job security and manufacturing and logistics jobs. And they're really cool jobs out there, even for entry and mid-level employees. So we're trying to spread the word about the great jobs that are out there, that it's a good career path. Um, but also working with the institutions that do the training um, and certifying to make sure that the needs are being met, uh, the, the industry needs and requirements are being met. And, um, and then we also put on events. Uh, we've done, you know, some workforce forums and we're considering one for 2022 to bring the industry, the training institutions and some government together to talk about how they can all work better to move things forward. Um, so workforce is really exciting. Um, there's a lot of opportunity out there. And then we also, with the new USMCA, there's a, um, they've developed different committees out of the different chapters of the, of the USMCA, the new NAFTA agreement. And uh, we're looking at some opportunities to infuse some of our workforce ideas into the, into the work of those committees and see if that can help move things forward a little bit more quickly. Well, the more you talk, the more I realize that we have more in common with, with Mexico and Canada um, than ever was realized. And it's interesting that workforce is not a product that moves across borders and changes, but the, the product of workforce development is consistent. Do you, do you see NASCO ever promoting like an international policy for workforce development and training? Um, well, I think that we, we sort of, uh, I think we, we, we are a little bit. We're advocating for a North American approach 
And so we feel strongly that the three federal governments could work together um, along with subnational governments and with the training institutions. I mean, it, it kind of depends on where you fall, but some of this work can be done, I think, without waiting for federal governments to take action on policy. Um, but I definitely think when you talk about the new platform or the improved platform that USMCA gives all three countries, um, with workforce and labor being such a focus of it, uh, with the three, with the two presidents and the prime minister aligned on the importance of workforce, and I think there's a real opportunity um, in the coming years to promote a coordinated approach to how we train our entry and mid-level workers and to be, you know, again, the immigration is a hot button right now, but I think eventually what needs to happen is we need to have portable credentials across borders um, and to have more people being able to move freely within the three countries to do the jobs they need and then to go home because a lot of the immigrants that stay here in the United States uh, from different places are, are, are they're staying because they're afraid if they go home, they won't ever be able to get back in. And so that's a big issue. Again, I'm not, I don't deal with the immigration issue, but um, certainly by having portable workforce credentialing um, and greater flexibility and movement between the three countries, it would uh, improve the competitiveness of, of our, of our companies and, and really the quality of life for the, for the workers too. Tiffany, I've enjoyed the intellectual rigor of this conversation today. You've got some key insights that our listeners are just going to be thrilled uh, to uncover. And I must say that Chamura, we're so happy to be a part of NASCO um, now as members. And as a partner, we like to help your members um, understand more about labor data intelligence as they uh, understand skills gaps and the myriad of labor market issues. So any way that we can help, we we would love to. Just just reach out and let us know. Well, we will. Now, we would welcome the opportunity to work more closely with you guys. We're thrilled to have you as as members of NASCO, and I think you bring a lot to the table in, in several different areas, you know, on which we focus. So I think there's a lot of ways we can coordinate and, and help each other out. So I very much look forward to that. And Tiffany, we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Chamura can be the difference between a right decision and a wrong one. With robust, innovative tools, clear, credible, and customized advice, we harness the world of data. We believe you deserve more than a cookie-cutter experience. Our PhD economists give our clients the confidence to become experts in applied labor market data. Centered around excellence, in service, in data, and in insight, we set our standards high so our clients' decisions are always grounded in integrity. Visit us at chamuraecon.com. Chamura, let us be your research partner.